from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, May 28th. I'm Marco Werman. A key moment in Syria as the international outcry over a civilian massacre grows. And later, voters in Egypt are faced with a polarizing dilemma. Now they have to choose between the two extremes that are exactly what they were trying to avoid. Plus, a veteran recalls his close encounter with an Iraqi bullet. Turns out that some guy in the Abu Ghraib section of Baghdad fired his pistol. It came through the city, over the berm, into the base, and into my backside. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. United Nations envoy Kofi Annan arrived in Syria today and immediately urged every individual with a gun to stop the violence there. Annan is in Damascus at what could be a critical moment in the Syrian conflict. There is a growing international outcry after the killing of more than 100 civilians, including many children, in the Syrian town of Hula. The U.N. Security Council has condemned the Syrian government for its role in the incident, particularly its use of heavy weapons to shell civilian neighborhoods. Even longtime Syrian ally Russia signed on to that U.N. statement. The group Human Rights Watch is urging a swift, independent investigation of what happened in Hula. Nadim Houri is director of Human Rights Watch's office in Beirut in Lebanon. First of all, Nadim, what specifically does your organization want to happen with regards to the shootings in Hula? And what do you really hope to accomplish? Uh, Two things. First, we want Kofi Annan to push the Syrian authorities to allow access to the U.N.-mandated Commission of Inquiry which has been appointed for more than a year, but has not been given access to Syria, to go in and do a proper investigation, particularly for the cold-blooded killing of more than 60 people in Hula, many of them children. So there were many victims of shelling, but there were many people who were killed in cold blood by armed gunmen. And according to survivors that we spoke to, they believe they were pro-government forces known as the Shabiha, which is a militia. Two, Hula is just the latest massive violation that we've been documenting. We want the UN Security Council to finally refer the situation in Syria to the International Criminal Court. I mean, there are different accounts, as you know, of what occurred last Friday in Hula. Some survivors described armed men dressed in military clothes attacking homes on the outskirts of Hula, executing entire families. But the Syrian government is saying its own soldiers were attacked and it was armed terrorists who went on to shoot civilians. I mean, realistically, with these differing views, how do you get to the bottom of this? Where do you even begin an investigation? If you had a proper team on the ground, they would uh, go meet survivors, gather testimonies. They would go visit the areas that came under attack, look at the sort of ballistics, what kind of bullets were used. And you can reconstruct a lot. I mean, we spoke to a number of people from Hula. And what we know is in the early afternoon, some armed opposition gunmen did try to attack a military checkpoint because that checkpoint had opened fire on a protest earlier that day. 
And after that attack took place, the government forces shelled intensely uh, large parts of Hula. And this is what UN monitors on the ground were able to confirm. And while the shelling was ongoing, around 6.30, these armed gunmen went into these homes. And, you know, in one family, the Abdelazat family, we obtained more than 62 names of people who were killed from that family. And three survivors from that family believe it was the Shabiha. And the killing only stopped when the opposition groups came back. So, you know, this is just a preliminary investigation. But what you need, if you had people on the ground able to operate freely, to interview people, to figure out where the army checkpoint was in terms of distance from where some of these cold-blooded killings took place, you could answer a lot of these things. And we would move away from these generic assertions by the Syrian government that there are terrorists responsible for all of that. I mean, so far, free access has not really been possible. Why do you think this moment might offer that possibility that things will change? For the Syrian government to change its behavior, it's going to have to feel the pressure of the international community acting in one voice. Particularly, it needs to feel that Russia is fed up with its behavior and that Russia will stop sending it weapons, will stop shielding it from Security Council action if it does not take steps. You know, we're not naive. We know that the Syrian government is not just suddenly going to grant access. But if they felt they had no other choice, they just might act in that way and allow these people to go in. Nadim Hore, Human Rights Watch's senior researcher for Syria and Lebanon. He joined us from Beirut. Nadim, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. In Egypt, a runoff presidential vote was formally announced today. Muslim Brotherhood candidate Mohamed Mursi will face Ahmed Shafiq. Shafiq is a military man who served as the last prime minister under the old president, Hosni Mubarak. Mercy and Shafiq got the most votes in last week's first round election, but neither got a majority. Reporter Ursula Lindsay in Cairo says it's a disappointing matchup for many Egyptians. Almost half of the votes in the first round went not to the member of the Muslim Brotherhood or the member of the former regime who will be facing each other in the second round. They did go to candidates that people thought represented change. They went to an Islamist moderate candidate who was an opponent of the Mubarak regime. They went to a leftist candidate who was also a lifelong opposition activist and opponent of the regime. But the vote was split between them and others, so they didn't get what they needed to proceed to the second round. So was this a tactical error then by moderates and uh, the revolutionaries of the Arab Spring? Well, there's a lot of soul-searching over this now and some regret, but, you know, it's, it was the first election of this kind, and, and people voted for the candidates that inspired them, and it was also a very short campaign period. There was one month, and the support for the candidates, the momentum that the different candidates had changed very fast over time, so it was hard to predict what would happen. How surprised are Egyptians by this stark result, uh, Ursula? I mean, the second round will pit a former Mubarak insider against a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Are people surprised? I think people always expected that the Muslim Brotherhood candidate would have a fairly strong showing. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood has a very strong organizational backbone and very committed supporters, and they shouldn't be dismissed entirely. A lot of their members and supporters did, in fact, participate in the revolution, even if their vision for Egypt after it may be quite different from that of secular revolutionaries. 
I think a lot of people are surprised and very upset at the strong showing of Ahmed Shafiq, the former general and head of the Aviation Authority and Prime Minister under Mubarak. He was Mubarak's prime minister, appointed during the uprising. Then he sort of resigned in disgrace, and I think this is a figure that people did not think they would see again on the national stage. And the turnout in this uh, first round, 46 percent, did that meet expectations? Was it higher or lower than the parliamentary vote earlier this year in Egypt? It was lower than the parliamentary vote, and it's something that people have pointed to already. So not only will the two candidates who will make it to the second round have only gotten half of the vote between them, but it will be half of a pretty low turnout, especially when this, I mean, this was a very historic election, the first time that Egyptians could truly elect their president. The turnout was low, and people point to this as a sign that confidence in the process and in the political transition was already low before this election took place. I mean, as polarizing as the results are, uh, it should be said that half of the voters did cast their votes for centrist candidates. What now for those voters? Have you spoken with any of them, and how are they feeling? They're disappointed, and they're facing a very tough choice because now they have to choose between the two extremes that are exactly what they were rejecting with their choices in the first round. And there's a lot of people trying to figure out whether to boycott or whether, even if they don't like either candidate, there's you know one of the two that they really want to make sure doesn't get in. And so it's a very bitter choice for a lot of people, and I think they're still struggling with it. Reporter Ursula Lindsay in Cairo, thanks very much for the update. You're welcome. We have a slideshow of cartoons about the Egyptian election from the Arab world and beyond at theworld.org. The U.S. presidential election is not until the fall, but we already know some of the major themes. One of them is the resurgence of the U.S. auto industry. You can expect both Democrats and Republicans to talk about it a lot as an all-American success story. Except it isn't, not entirely anyway. Here is the world's Alex Galifant. Earlier this spring, there were two big car shows, the New York Auto Show and the Auto China Exhibition held in Beijing. The two events were scheduled around the same time, and car writer Phil Patton told me that forced some auto executives to choose which one they'd go to. They're trying to be delicate, but there are many cases where executives have uh, skipped New York for China. Patton writes about automotive design for the New York Times. The reason China's top of the pecking order... Well, despite a slowdown in the Chinese economy, people there are still buying lots of cars. There's no question that the really powerful uh, influence here is the simple numbers. And uh, you look just at the top selling lists of models in China and you see Buicks and Chevrolets and Nissans. As a result, international car design is increasingly influenced by Chinese tastes. Take the Nissan Altima, a Japanese family sedan that's long been made in Tennessee and other places. According to Phil Patton, for the first time, the version available in the U.S. will be identical to the car designed with Chinese buyers in mind. That's sort of a landmark. It'll be a little bit fancier than the old model, a touch more bling, if you will, with large grills up front and shiny chrome around the windows. See, young Chinese consumers want the nicer things, better upholstery, more legroom in the back, Turns out if you've got a bit of cash in China, it looks good to be driven around by a chauffeur. But one American brand does have an edge in China. That's Buick. 
It was the brand favored by the last emperor of China, Hu Yi. And it continues to have great prestige uh, as a luxury brand. And I'm amazed that Chairman Mao, after all the cultural revolutions and great leaps forward, did not manage to obscure that brand appeal. When was the last time you saw a new Buick on American roads? I'm sure they're out there. But in China... The best-selling car in China is the Buick Excel. And Buick, remember, was a brand that was almost dead in this country a few years ago. It, the average age, as they used to say, was greatest generation, meaning 65. New Buicks were developed in large part to respond to China. In fact, you might argue that Buick was kept alive to feed the Chinese market. It was a choice in the crisis between saving Pontiac and saving Buick. They opted for Buick because of China. For a different take on automotive design, I went to meet Tony Baxter, a partner at New York design firm Curve ID. He thinks different markets do demand subtle differences, the design elements that are going to make a car or any kind of product tug the heartstrings of a buyer in this or that country. But consumers aren't limited to their own backyards. These days they can go online and see what's good wherever it crops up. So especially with the car market, the automotive market, People in China and Asia, they have a very good idea of what is popular and what is available in all the rest of the world. And what's popular in cars trickles down into the work Baxter's firm does for one of its major clients, the U.S. tractor maker John Deere. Tractor connoisseurs here in the U.S. look for a mix of practical function and fancy aesthetics, like a clear cab shaped like a bubble for the driver to sit in or a powerful sound system. In the U.S., it's really all about comfort and convenience. In India, for example, many of the tractors are sold without cabs because of the terrain, because of the dust, the lack of maintenance maybe as well. In fact, Tony Baxter told me that some tractors bound for India are outfitted with extra large running boards so that lots of people can jump on for a ride. It's that kind of flexibility, says Phil Patton, that's key for any kind of automaker now especially those selling to the fast-changing Chinese market. And that's important because some of the cars that are successful can be faddish or fashion-driven. You want to be able to do, say, a, a rugged car on top of the Fiat 500. Right, and, it, and it's only going to be year of the Dragon 1s, or, or, or at least until the next time comes around. That's right. You have to get ready for year of the rat, and I hope that won't be in the upholstery. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. Still ahead in Burma, freedom slowly starts to ring and drug lords go ka-ching on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. On Memorial Day, we remember those people in the armed forces who've given their lives to defend our country. It's a meaningful day for anyone who served in the military. We've been speaking with a lot of veterans about what it's been like coming home from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Today, we share the story of veteran Russ Davis from Braintree, Massachusetts. I enlisted back in uh, April of 2002. I uh, was unemployed. I had recently left a job at Bed Bath & Beyond working stock. And that's pretty much it. It just happened that, you know, I decided to sign up when I had nothing else going on. And at the time you were 23? 23, yes. Right. So nothing else going on. Uh, going from Bed Bath & Beyond into the military seems like a big jump, almost a, a leap of faith. What were you thinking? 
Well, not so much a leap of faith because it was something I had always planned on doing. Uh, I planned on doing it when I turned 25 regardless of what the world situation was. So it it wasn't like, you know, I just woke up one day and said, oh, well, I got nothing else to do. I'll join the military. Was it 9-11 that kind of pushed you in that direction further? Well, yeah. Yeah, 9-11 had a big part of it. And uh, like I say, I'd always planned on joining when I was 25 anyways. But, you know, since there was a war on at the time, yeah, I figured now's the time to go. Yeah, now I'm needed. You seem like a, a, a smart guy. You could have picked any specialty in the military, I, I would assume, and yet you chose infantry, the branch of service with the highest casualty rate. Why, why'd you go in that direction? Well, I I, cho- I chose that direction because I didn't sign up to, you know, a lot of folks sign up for college money or to learn a trade. Uh, basically, I signed up because I wanted to fight. Uh, the way I put it is, you know, when everyone was kids, nobody played with a G.I. Joe computer repairman. And also I felt that that was, you know, where I could contribute the most and contribute the hardest. Do the thing, you know, most people don't want to do. You know, somebody's got to do it. So you served in South Korea, then two tours in Iraq with the 10th Mountain Division. Um, You wanted to fight. I guess you saw some time to fight in Iraq. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Tell me about your time there. Well, you know, good days and bad days, like any job. Uh, Best part of the whole thing was, you know, it's... Some people say it's a cliche, but it's it's really not. You know, the whole band of brothers thing. You uh, you never forget the guys you serve with. Uh, and to this day, you know, they're still some of the finest people I ever knew. Uh, I wouldn't trade, you know, war, it's, well, to put it simply, it's bad. Uh, you know, it's not a good time. But at the same time, when you get out of it, you know, it's something I wouldn't trade for anything. You know, the life experience. It also really makes you uh, appreciate what you got. Mm. You were nicked a couple of times, uh, minor injuries by enemy action, but but you never filed the paperwork for a Purple Heart. Can you tell me what went through your mind and, and the, the thought process there? Well, I, I get clipped in the can, basically. What happened there was I was about a week from leaving, and I was counting ammunition for the unit that was replacing us because at that time I was performing the duty as company armor, And all of a sudden... I felt this intense pain in my backside, and I jumped up, and when I looked down, I saw this deformed little 9mm hollow-point bullet laying on the ground. Turns out that some guy in the Abu Ghraib section of Baghdad fired his pistol. It came through the city, over the berm, into the base, and into my backside. It bounced off. It uh, basically, my left butt cheek... Looked like, you ever see one of those pictures of nebulas yeah, you know, right. from outer space? It looked like that for a couple <laughs> weeks. So it was just a one in a, million, one in a million shot. It hurt, but it wasn't serious. Uh, and for the next, like, four months I was in the service, I had to put up with the nickname Iron Ass. Because <laughs> I was the only person in Iraq with a bulletproof backside. You couldn't exactly justify a heroic act in the, in the line of battle with that. No, it was just a nice ironic parting shot from Iraq right as I left. It, it sounds almost like, and I don't want to say average, but it sounds like your experience in Iraq as an infantryman was, wasn't was terrible, wasn't great. It was kind of average. Yeah, it was average. Yeah, a lot of guys had a lot worse than I did. Like I said, good days and bad days, everything's a matter of perspective. Russ, tell me about your homecoming. Uh, what did you imagine it would be like, and what was the reality of it? The way I imagined it was, you know, I, I didn't, and I'm sure it's like this for a lot of guys, didn't imagine like terror tape parade or anything like that. 
yeah, basically, I was just focused on seeing my family and friends again, getting on with my life. I hadn't even really planned on what to do at that point. Just wanted to get on with my life, and it's pretty much what happened. You know, the, the only tough part is, you know, the readjustment from the military life to the civilian life. And it's just a little jarring when you get out and you see, you know, people's lives have changed, you know, all the stuff you missed. The biggest thing is, you know, you're changed. Like for me personally, I was a lot more, you know, when I want something done, you know, I got to get it done now, da-da-da-da-da. You know, if I needed something, I'd do it myself. I'm still that way to this day. You know, I don't trust other people to get things taken care of for me. One of the big changes in your life is that you're now at uh, UMass Boston, uh, a beneficiary uh, of the GI Bill. I'm just wondering what it's like being in classrooms with students who are at least 10 years younger than you. That is probably the single most difficult part uh, thing I've had to deal with since getting home. Yeah, what's that? Is, uh, well, problem you deal with is, you know, you go to school. The age difference really doesn't matter to me in itself. But, you know, you, you come home, you go to classes, and it seems like everyone's got an opinion on the Iraq War. And when you get into college, everybody assumes that you want to hear about it. Uh it's one of the hot-button topics to the point where, you know, I'll be sitting in an English literature class, and for some reason the professor will feel the need to discuss his opinions of the war in Iraq or something. It's like, come on now. Just, just stop. <laughs> have you ever told a professor to, to stop? I mean, have you actually had words with a prof in the middle of the class like that? Well, gen- generally what happens is a professor or a student will go off on a tangent and – uh I'll just quietly put my hand up and I'll put them well. You know, I was there and, you know, this is a little bit different and da-da-da-da-da. And yeah, so then after that, typically, yeah, it's like er, you can hear the record stop and no one wants to talk <laughs> about it anymore. It becomes very uncomfortable for all involved. So it, pretty much when I get in a class where I know that that's going to be an issue, I'll try to get that over with as soon as, as, soon as possible so that hopefully it'll put the reins on them for the rest of the class. And I'm not the only one I know that because there are a lot of veterans there. And I've talked to veterans who go to school too, and a lot of them have the same issue. Very frustrating. Mm. What are you studying, Russ, and what do you hope to do with that degree? Uh, Currently I'm studying uh, social psychology. Uh, Once I graduate from UMass, I'll be going on to a graduate school to study for a master's in social work with a focus on mental health because my goal is to work with veterans who have either PTSD adjustment issues or just in general benefits facilitation. Have you seen PTSD among, uh, among your friends? Your oh, buddies? yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen plenty of it with guys I know. Uh, it's also a big issue in the veteran community at large, and that's nothing new. When you look back on your military service, Russ, what do you think of most? My buddies. Yeah. Because, like I, like I say, you know, you meet some of the best people you'll, you'll ever meet in your life. And, yeah, that's, that's mostly what I think of. Well, Russ Davis, thanks very much for coming in and speaking with us. Oh, thanks for having me, sir. Anytime. Russ Davis served two tours in Iraq and is now studying to become a mental health counselor to help other vets. You can hear more veteran stories at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, singer-songwriter Regina Spector explains the origins of her sound and her quirky dual personality. I spent the first nine years of my life 
being a little Russian girl, you know, and then I moved to the Bronx, and, you know, and then at nine and a half, my life as a little American girl began. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. There was a deadly protest in the Tibetan capital, Lhasa, today. Two young men set themselves on fire. Police put the fires out quickly, but one man still died. Since March last year, there have been more than 30 self-immolations by Tibetans protesting Chinese rule. But these are the first cases in Lhasa. The world's Beijing correspondent is Mary Kay Magstad. Mary Kay, tell us what happened here. So basically, two young men who worked for a Tibetan restaurant, but who were from other parts of China, ethnic Tibetan parts of China, took part in a small protest outside the Jokong, which is the most sacred Buddhist temple for Tibetan Buddhists, set themselves on fire. Police quickly came in, doused the fire, cleaned up the whole situation in, inside of 15 minutes, and then confiscated cell phones and cameras from anyone who was nearby. I'm wondering, you know, would Tibetans in Lhasa dare turn the restaurant where these two young men worked into a sort of shrine? Would they kind of try and memorialize them in some way or that would I don't happen? think yeah. I don't think security forces would let them. I th- I think with each of these deaths, the you know, Tibetan community mourns the death and respects the the impulse uh, of, you know, someone willing to give their life to draw attention to the situation Tibetans find themselves in. Many Tibetans feel that the Chinese government has come in, taken control of their area, dominated the economy. Um, Although a lot of money has come in, so have a lot of Han Chinese, and they take most of the jobs. Mm. Um, Younger Tibetans who grow up uh, learning Mandarin and who are better equipped to be able to participate in the uh, Chinese economy do better. And I have talked to Tibetans, particularly in provinces like Sichuan and Yunnan, who say, you know, I mean, it's not ideal, but at least it's 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 a better life economically than what my parents and grandparents had. They're kind of willing to take the trade off. What a lot of Tibetans ideally would like is to be able to practice their religion, including worshiping the Dalai Lama, to be able to continue to learn their language and speak their language at home and to some extent in school without the restrictions that they have faced intermittently but increasingly because of of what the Chinese government would like to do, which is to integrate Tibetans into mainstream Han Chinese culture. In the past year or so, Mary Kay, there have been 34 uh, such incidents like this. 20 people have died uh, as a result of setting themselves on fire. What connects these men and women who have self-immolated? Do we have any idea if this is spontaneous or organized in any way? The Chinese government says that it is organized and that it's the Dalai Lama who's behind all of these self-immolations. The Chinese government has gone so far as to call these self-immolations acts of terrorism. There isn't independent evidence that suggests that these were coordinated in some way. The Dalai Lama has said, I did not call on these people to self-immolate. In fact, I'm distressed by this, but I also honor their sacrifice. The um, head of the Tibetan 
government in exile, Lapsang Sangi, has said on more than one occasion that he, he calls on Tibetan people to avoid extreme acts. And he very specifically has said in interviews, and I mean self-immolation. Mm. So the encouragement is not coming publicly from either of them. However, I think that there's a certain momentum that has grown as as Tibetans have seen the sort of attention that self-immolations get. The Chinese government's reaction is to try to play them down, clean up as quickly as possible, dismiss the act as being uh, the act of someone who's either mentally imbalanced or a criminal or a terrorist, and then just move on. So, you know, we're at the point now where there have been closing on three dozen self-immolations, and the Chinese newspapers, Chinese media treat them as, as a number, just another crazy Tibetan who set himself on fire. The world's Beijing correspondent, Mary Kay Magsad, thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. We move now to a part of Southeast Asia with an unfortunate reputation as a drug trafficking corridor. That's the focus of our GeoQuiz today. We want you to name a region that overlaps the territories of several Southeast Asian countries. They include Laos, Thailand, and Myanmar, or Burma. Much of the heroin that reached American cities back in the 1970s was said to have come from this region. Nowadays, it's methamphetamine pills and opium and heroin that are smuggled through there. Police in Thailand say there's been an alarming surge of drug traffic in this region in recent months, especially coming from Myanmar. The country has seen some big political changes recently. We'll hear whether that's at all related to the drug surge when we return with the answer in a few minutes. trash that we humans generate has long been a threat to marine environments, especially all the plastic that ends up floating in our oceans. Well, scientists now say there's much more plastic in the seas than previously thought. Sabri Benashur of station WAMU in Washington has our story. In Marvin Gate Park in Washington, D.C., there's a trash trap over the creek here. It skims the surface for floating trash. There's a plastic water bottle, an ice cream container, a potato chip bag, a beer can. All in all, this trap catches about 800 pounds of trash a month. But over almost all the other streams in the area, there are no trash traps. In most streams, trash like this will float into the river. And out into the ocean. And then, maybe, here. This is actually sort of our plastic archive collection. Mary Engels is the science coordinator at the Sea Education Association, or SEA, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And she's pulling out boxes of little tins, sort of like shoe polish tins. Each tin has dozens of confetti-like pieces of plastic inside. These samples were taken in the Sargasso Sea to the east of Bermuda. That's about a thousand miles out in the Atlantic. The samples are from what's called a subtropical gyre, a giant swirl of calm water near the equator. The Earth has five big ones, each thousands of miles across. The way the planet spins and the currents flow, the gyres end up collecting all kinds of trash. SEA researchers skimmed the surface of the North Atlantic gyre with a meter-wide net for about a mile, and this is what they got. Blues and greens, a lot of white opaque pieces that are like sheet plastic. You have some darker pieces as well. 
Some fibers. It's hard to tell by looking at them what these bits once were or where they came from. Polypropylene, which is a lot of fishing gear, lines, nets, uh, clothing is often polypropylene, yogurt containers, uh, polyethylene, which are your plastic bags, and the last is your styrofoam. Yura Proskurowski is a research scientist at the University of Washington who's worked with SEA. In the North Atlantic, it's almost certain that the sources of plastic are from the United States, Europe, the Gulf and Caribbean regions. But like I said, there are five big oceanic gyres, and each one sucks in trash from the countries along the surrounding coast. Scientists have known about these giant swirls of trash for years, but Proskurowski says there is probably much more of it than anyone ever thought. I was in the middle of the North Pacific subtropical gyre, and the surface of the ocean was flat, calm, and all of a sudden I saw thousands of little tiny pieces of white and blue plastic. And it was like a, when a photograph comes into focus perfectly and everything just pops out. And as soon as the wind started kicking up, uh, within a half an hour, you could no longer see those plastic pieces. Proskurowski went on to research this, and it turns out the wind was pushing the garbage down, far down. After that, I started doing subsurface tows, where we tow three meters below the surface and five meters below the surface. And in every one of those tows, I collected plastic. There's conflicting research from different oceans, but one recent survey in the Pacific found that the amount of plastic is going way up. Over the last four decades, plastic has increased in the North Pacific by 100 times. Miriam Goldstein is a graduate student who's been part of a research project at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. Despite the huge influx, Goldstein says, there is no island of trash. There's this misconception that there's like a big floating garbage that you can see and walk on. But actually, most of the plastic is really small. So what, then, is the big deal? Well, we actually think that is probably worse. Because if there was an island, we, it would be easy to fix. We just send a barge out there, pick it up, done. The problem is that marine animals and seabirds eat this plastic. Karen Lavender-Law is with the Sea Education Association. She's collaborated with Giora Proskurowski and has seen it firsthand. You know, we brought aboard this beautiful fish, and in the name of science, we dissected it. Uh, in the name of dinner, we filleted it. And, you know, looking inside the gut of this mahi-mahi, there is a piece of plastic sort of gridded material that was probably two by three inches in size. It's worrisome because plastics can gum up an animal's system. Law says they also act like sponges for more harmful persistent pollutants like PCBs, which they then can transfer to animals' fatty tissue. And the plastics themselves can break down into harmful chemicals. There's little data on exactly what all this plastic is doing to ocean-going life, but researcher Giora Proskurowski says... The fact that there's any plastic there at all is what's important. When you're 2,000 miles away from land and... You can dip your net in the water and get 200 pieces of plastic. That's, that seems sort of insane to me. It's like going to the very farthest part of the Amazon and seeing plastic bags in every single tree. He says it's something to think about next time you buy something in a plastic bag or toss out a plastic bottle. For The World, I'm Sabri Beneshore. How's all that plastic in our oceans affecting marine ecosystems? The world's Ritu Chatterjee answers that question in her latest science podcast. You can download it at theworld.org slash science. Back to our GeoQuiz now and to that region in Southeast Asia that's seen a surge in drug trafficking. The answer is the Golden Triangle, an area that overlaps the borders of Myanmar, Thailand and Laos. Increased drug activity there comes just as democratic reforms seem to be taking root in Myanmar. 
New York Times reporter Thomas Fuller in Bangkok says it appears to be more than just coincidence. Well, what the Thai authorities say, the the military and the police who work along the border and who are intercepting a lot of the drugs that are coming across, is that there is a connection between the reforms and the reconciliation that the Burmese government is trying to bring about and the surge in drugs. No one is really clear on exactly why there's been this surge of drug trafficking, but a few of the theories are that the syndicates that are producing the drugs are trying to sell as much as they can before too much peace and order set in. Uh, And another theory is that, you know, a lot of the fighting that's been going on in that part of Myanmar, which is filled with a patchwork of ethnic groups that uh, have been fighting the central government for years, a lot of that fighting is now dying down and the government's really trying to reach agreements with the ethnic groups. They don't have to fight, said one police officer I spoke to, so the soldiers can now be deployed in the drug business. But wasn't uh, drug trafficking a means by which some of those disenfranchised Burmese ethnic groups you're talking about financed their operations? I mean, hasn't that always been a big problem there? It's always been a big problem. As a matter of fact, the Golden Triangle was a big source of heroin for American cities in the 70s and 80s. Afghanistan then eclipsed the Golden Triangle. Uh, These days, heroin production has declined. It's still there. There, There's still a fair number of busts of opium and heroin, but it's methamphetamines that are really pouring across the border, sometimes a few million pills in one bust. Wow. Did you witness these traffickers as they transferred shipments of methamphetamine across the Maasai River? You know, they're brazen, but I guess they're not that brazen. I, I was I was walking around with, you know, police, and they didn't dare, you know, th- toss over bags of methamphetamines while, while we were inspecting the, uh, it's called the Psy River. And uh, no, I didn't, I didn't see it myself, but the soldiers that I spoke to and the police that I interviewed describe the various ways that the drugs are coming across. It's a very narrow river, the Sai River. Traffickers sometimes just throw bags across the river for an accomplice to pick up on the other side. I think more that, that's, those are small amounts. More often, the drugs are hidden inside shipments of other stuff coming out of Burma. It's a, it's a bustling trading city, and the traffickers take advantage of that activity. Thomas, by the way, where does the name Golden Triangle come from? Uh, It's a term that was coined in the 1960s, right around the time of the Vietnam War, by a senior U.S. official who referred to a golden triangle. I'm not quite sure why he used the term golden, but it then caught on. And and now, strangely, if you cross over onto the Burmese side, you'll you'll see a, a big sign that says, Welcome to the Golden Triangle. So it's a term with a lot of notoriety. It's... um, Uh, specifically where the borders of Myanmar, Thailand, and Laos meet. There's actually a place along the Mekong River. It's the very northern tip of Thailand. What about drug enforcement? Don't the officials, don't the police and and army know this is going on? It's more than an open secret. I mean, there are almost uh, daily seizures reported in the Thai press, It's still a very lawless place. It's the Wild West of Southeast Asia where the rule of law is very weak. The Thais believe that a lot of the Burmese authorities are either complicit in the drug trade or part of it themselves. 
New York Times reporter Thomas Fuller speaking with us from Bangkok about the Golden Triangle. That's the answer to our geo-quiz today. Thomas, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. And this is Regina Spector. How can I forget your love? How can I never see you again? There is a time and place for one more sweet embrace. And there's a time ooh, when it all ooh, went wrong. I guess you know by now that we will meet again somehow how oh 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 baby how singer-songwriter Regina Spector's latest album comes out tomorrow it's called what we saw from the cheap seats Spector grew up in New York City in the Bronx but she was born in Moscow and lived there until 1989. As she puts it, she spent the first nine years of her life being a little Russian girl. Spectre is something of a darling among music fans who gravitate toward independent artists with original voices. In that respect, there's plenty to satisfy those fans on what we saw from the cheap seats. If you listen carefully, there are also stylistic influences from Russia. But Regina Spector told me that her Soviet influences come from just a handful of songwriters. I didn't really grow up in Russia enough to be influenced by popular music. I don't even really know what the popular music there is or was. I was much more influenced by singer-songwriters and bards. Like who? The kind of, like uh, Bulat Akujava. Two of his songs I actually covered in Russian for the digital deluxe version of my record. Mm. I also really, really love Vladimir Vysotsky, and he is uh, definitely a, a national hero of, you know, a Soviet songwriter and an incredible actor and poet. You mentioned uh, this uh, singer, Bulat Akujava, uh, who mm-hmm. has composed so many songs that uh, are adored, apparently, in Russia. Now, the song Prayer, I think that's a translation of the song he wrote. Let's have a listen to it. This is uh, actually oh, from a vinyl, so we'll, we'll take a, a taste of this. Пока земля еще вертится, пока еще ярок свет, Господи, дай ты каждому, чего у него нет. Умному дай голову, трусливому дай коня. Дай счастливому денег и не забудь про меня. That's Regina Spector performing a song by the Russian singer Bulat Akujava. Um, explain to our American listeners, uh, Regina Spector, who Bulat Akujava is and what he represents for Russians and you. Well, he he's an amazing poet. He um, 
He was of the times of World War II. His songs are very melodic. Like he writes these melodies that just sort of hurt, you know. And he was of the, from the Georgian Republic. Uh, he's just a national hero. And, and Regina, what lines of uh, Bulat Akujava do you often wheel out when you think of him? Let me see. I mean, I, I definitely the the two songs that I covered. You know, um, one is uh, Malitva, and the other one is Stare Pijak, which means um, the old jacket. And yeah, give um, us a few lines of that one. Uh, old jacket starts. Я старый пиджак давно ношу, совсем он. It's a very heartbreaking song. It's about this man who he has this old suit jacket. And he's worn it for a long time, and it's threadbare and, you know, unfashionable. And so he takes it to a tailor to have it altered a bit. And he jokingly says to the tailor, you know, if you if you alter it just right, you know, maybe, maybe if it has a new cut, my luck will change in mm. this world. And the old tailor, he's, he took it really to heart, and he's... He's worrying and he's struggling, and as he's sewing and re-sewing this jacket, he sees it almost as if it's reality in his mind's eye. He sees that as soon as I I put this jacket on, I will believe in your love again. Mm. But um, that's not how things work. What a silly old man. <laughs> When you sing in Russian, do you find that you express yourself differently? Is there an emotional side of you that is more easily accessed in Russian? I think that, you know, I definitely feel like it's a it's a different side of me, for sure. It's, you know, it's my first language. I spent the first nine years of my life being a little Russian girl, you know, and then I moved to the Bronx and, you know, and then at nine and a half, my life as a little American girl began. There are things, especially in the words of, you know, Akujava and Pushkin. And when I read Russian literature, when I listen to songs of that time, I really love it. I love going into the world of, you know, opening a Russian book or reading poems by some of my favorite poets in Russian. It's just... It definitely feels just like a different part of me. Uh, finally, Regina Spector, the piano that you learned to play on, that Czech-made Petrov, your family yeah. had to leave it in Moscow when you moved to the States. Have you ever gone back to try and find it, or is it one of those things that you just have to let go of? I think, you know, I'm going to go back for the first time since I've left, actually, really? this summer to play a couple of shows. Yeah, I'm. I'm so excited about that. And I... You know, it's going to be just an overall big emotional thing for me just to go back there after all these years, especially playing music. But um, I wouldn't even begin to know where to look for it. Regina Spector, the new album is called What We Saw from the Cheap Seeds. Thank you and really good to speak with you. Thank you so much, Marco. All the robots in the paintings, they keep trying to roll away. 
captains, worried faces, sticking toward it and staring at the waves. They keep hanging in the gold frames for forever, forever and a day. All the rowboats and oil paintings, they keep trying to row away, row away. What we saw from the cheap seats is the title of Regina Spector's new album. It comes out tomorrow. This song, All the Rowboats, is the first single from the CD. You can see the video at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for being with us. Hear them whispering, French and German, Dutch, Italian and Latin. When no one's looking, I touch a sculpture marble, cold and soft as satin. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org. PRI, Public Radio International.